Well, before we look together at Philippians chapter 4, verses 8 and 9 this morning, I simply want to note that we are quickly approaching the end of this glorious letter, this sweet epistle of the Apostle Paul that has been both a challenge and a comfort to us each week as we have made our way through the verses of this beloved letter and as we come to these two verses this morning, I didn't want you to get too excited uh, in thinking that, oh, we're almost near the end, and Nate has chosen a very small passage this morning, and so the sermon will be particularly short as we enter towards the text today. I didn't want to get you too excited because I've actually chosen over the next three weeks, including this Sunday, to spend on these two verses of Philippians chapter 4. Now, if you remember, and some of you keep up with these things, when I published the sermon series way back at the end of January, I know that feels like a world apart from where we are today, now in early May, but when we began this, this series at the end of January, now 14 weeks into the study of Philippians, uh, I had originally only planned to spend one week on these particular verses. And yet, as you know, next week, we're going to be, by God's grace, gathering once again for corporate worship here at Cornerstone. And some of you probably read on Friday when the communication was sent out regarding the reopening guidelines and the opportunity to register for now the three services that we are offering on Sunday morning it was actually said in those guidelines that there's going to be an abbreviated worship service beginning next week. And I mean that when we talk about an abbreviated worship service. And so in order for us to keep our time fairly strict as we go into the next few weeks together and begin corporate worship back and have plenty of time between services to clean the sanctuary, I thought, let's not try to bite off more than we can chew. Let's just look at a couple of verses together and let's sit in these verses. Let's sort of marinate in these verses and let the richness of the truth of what the Apostle Paul gives to us here uh, be stretched out over the course of three weeks, which means that I can take a very slow and deliberate walk with you through these verses and still not be too far off. We'll end the letter of Philippians by God's grace at the end of May and begin a brand new series uh, in the beginning of June. And so as we approach this passage this morning, I want to tell you, you're going to get to sit in these verses for the next few weeks. And so today, what we're going to try to do is a general flyover of this text. We're going to try to grasp where it is the Apostle Paul is in Philippians 4, 8, and 9, and, and, and sort of look over the Scriptures itself and say, how does this passage fit within the grand narrative of the Bible, and what are some of the key aspects of why it is this ver these verses have been treated with such depth and such profundity among scholars and commentators over the years and consider why this ver these verses actually deserve the kind of long treatment we're going to give them over the next few weeks together. So as we look at the text, as we'll read it here in just a minute, I want you to pay particular attention to two things. I want you to pay attention to the kind of thinking 
that the Apostle Paul is calling us to in Philippians 4, 8, and 9. The kind of thinking or the nature of thinking that the, Paul, that the Apostle Paul is setting forward for us. And then I want you to also think and notice about the content of thinking that the Apostle Paul is giving us in this passage. The content of thinking that Paul gives us in this passage. Because the kind of thinking and the content of that thinking actually is key to understanding what it means to be a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ. So with that by way of introduction, let's now focus our attention upon the passage before us. Philippians chapter 4, beginning in verse 8 and concluding in verse 9. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, Whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. The grass withers. And the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Amen. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, as we now, having heard your word read in the presence of your people, in the presence of the Holy Spirit who abides in the attending of the reading of this word, we now trust you to do what only you can do, to come and make this word live. To give us ears to hear, hearts to believe, and wills to obey everything that you teach us. That we might read and mark and inwardly digest all of what you would have us to know from this text. So that as we sit with you in this word and through the power of the Holy Spirit working within us, we might find that we have not merely gained information or taken away a few ideas, or neat insights. But we have truly met, encountered the living God, and we are forevermore changed. Come and hear this prayer, and answer it according to your will. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I take great comfort in reading just these few verses in Philippians chapter 4. In fact, that first uh, word of Philippians 4, uh, 8 is one of the words that I find great comfort in because here it is, the Apostle Paul, preacher of preachers, he says, finally, and then he continues for like 20 more verses after he says finally. It's a preacher's finally. It's a preacher's finally. There's no doubt about it. And I would just, if you have your Bibles open, and I, I hope you do. I, I hope you've got your text of Scripture open. You might actually look back all the way to chapter 3 of Philippians, and you might notice that Paul actually said finally back in chapter 3, too. And he's still talking as we are here in chapter 4. Now, I, I bring that to note just textually as we begin the message this morning to, um, to note that many, because of that word finally, have often seen verses 8 and 9 as cut off from what's come before in Philippians chapter 4, specifically uh, verses 6 and 7 where we looked at last week, God instructing us through Paul to be anxious for nothing, 
But in everything with prayer and supplication, let our requests be made known to God. And then the promise of peace that will follow those prayers that are offered to God as we give up our cares to him is what's presented to us in verses 6 and 7. And then that's sometimes closed out, and then it's like a new section. Finally, brothers, and it jumps into this uh, section. But if you look at the grammar, there's no reason to think that Paul is actually changing his line of thought as he comes into verses 8 and 9. In fact, it's probably better to read, oh, in light of what I've just told you, here's one final point of advice. Here's one final point of instruction. If you want to be able to pray in a way that gives up your cares to God and of which you will find the peace of God, then you're going to need to have a mind that thinks this way. You're going to need to have a mind that thinks this way. And I want to teach you, the Apostle Paul is saying to us, I want to teach you how to think in order to be able to pray that you might receive the peace of God. Now, it seems as if Paul's actually giving us a kind of well, almost like a, like a bit of a sandwich, if we can put it this way. Because there in verse 7, he says, The peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard your heart and mind in Christ Jesus. And then notice how he ends verse 9. If you practice these things, the God of peace will be with you. And so we've had the peace of God promised to us. And we have now the God of peace going to be with us. And what we have in between is where the God of peace and the peace of God really comes. It comes when we are thinking God's thoughts after him. When we begin to set our mind on the things above and not on the things of the earth. For our time together this morning, I want to take time to just... Uh, look with you uh, at the kind of thinking the Apostle Paul is instructing us in in this passage and this content of thinking. This We might even call it a curriculum for thinking that the Apostle Paul gives us here in verses 8 and 9. Now, it probably jumped off the page at you because it is certainly most dominantly the grammatical emphasis of the passage. It's that word, whatever. It's a bit of a rhetorical flair, as you see the Apostle Paul write here. Whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable. And it's almost as if he's, as he's writing, he's saying to himself, I, I could probably add another 10 or 15 things, but let me kind of close this up. If there's anything excellent, if there's anything worthy of praise. He, he sort of gives a catch-all phrase there in, in verse, in verse 9. And he begins to say, or the end of verse 8, and he begins to say, I want you to see that if your mind is set on these things, you're going to begin to experience the kind of peace-abiding life in God that he has designed for you, O disciple of Jesus Christ. Uh, if these are the, the points or objectives of which your mind circles around, if this is what is saturated into the, to, to the waves of your mind and into the thoughts of your mind, if this is, if this is etched, these pathways are etched uh, into the grooves of your mind, then this is going to be a way of peace for you. And you can notice that these objectives, these well, he lists them, there are six of them, these objectives, truth, honor, justice, purity, loveliness, and commendable or admirable, 
are, are objectives that he hopes will be truly governing or guiding of the ways in which we think. Now, if you, as you see those list of virtues, you might, you might say to yourself, well, it seems somewhat random to me that he would just choose those particular terms. But of course, those were terms and virtues that were widely known in the Greco-Roman world, widely known among the audience at Philippi whom the Apostle Paul is writing to. Paul is not picking these things out of thin air. He is, he is borrowing on the capital of what he knows is in the minds of his recipients. He, he's being a wise communicator here. He's paying attention to the audience of who he wants to receive this letter. And he says, I know you already know about these virtues. You've heard about them. They're in the air of the world in which you live. Now what I'm going to do is set them forward and build a bridge from what you know and recast for you what they really mean. I want to give to you now a truly Christian vision for thinking and living. One that is building off of, for certain, the capital of some of these virtues that's swimming around in your head there in Philippi. But I want to give them a Christological focus. I want you to see how the gospel reshapes thinking and virtue. In other words, the Apostle Paul is doing what the scholars like to call contextualization. He's, he's thinking in terms of the situation, and he's addressing the matters that are right there in the context, and he's doing so through the revealed Word of God. There's a volume that Leslie Newbegin wrote some years ago entitled, A Word in Season. It's a volume that uh, seeks to speak about this subject of contextualization, how to bring a match between an audience of hearers and, and the truth of the Word of God. Uh, Newbegin says that we must always navigate uh, two opposite dangers when we're speaking the Word of God in a cert certain cultural moment. He says, on the one hand, we must avoid the danger of being so separate from our culture that we have no contact point on which to build from in our preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ. But on the other hand, we've got to avoid the danger, he says, of becoming so culturally conditioned or so culturally embedded that we allow every point of contact with the culture to determine how the gospel is received and understood. Uh, Newbegin says we can't wall ourselves off from the culture to have no point of contact, but we can't so immerse ourselves in the culture to where we become enculturated and we water down the gospel message. In fact, we have to steer between these two poles and we have to learn to build bridges. Build bridges on the cultural contacts which the Lord gives to us and communicate the gospel faithfully in a way that the hearers can hear it. Paul is just simply demonstrating here what Leslie Newbegin suggested, that he is taking a cultural understanding and all of his sophistication and education and with pastoral wisdom and sensibility, he says, I want to speak to you in a way that you can hear it. There's actually a lot more going on than what initially meets the eye. What do I mean by that? Well, for instance, Dr. Howell Jones and his commentary on the letter of Philippians notes that these six objectives, truth, honor, justice, purity, loveliness, and commendability, can easily be regarded as three pairs of similar things. 
In fact, Jones suggests, along with a whole host of scholars, that there are three couplets that Paul gives us in these six objectives. He he says there's truth and honor. Uh, These are the virtues that speak to the reality of things. Then there's justice and there's purity, and these are the virtues that speak to the morality and its effect on things. And then there's loveliness and there's admirableness or commendability. And these are the virtues that speak to the beauty of the presentation of things. Jones notes, as well as many others, that when you begin to ponder just briefly those three couplets and you bring those six objectives into relationship with one another, an ancient paradigm of virtue begins to emerge. A paradigm which Paul himself would have been very familiar with. The ancient triad of truth, goodness, and beauty. Now it may have been a while since you have been uh, reading um, the philosopher, the Greek philosopher Plato. But as many of you know, uh, Plato's uh, leading transcendental virtues, as he liked to call them, were... Truth and goodness and beauty. He goes on and on and on about them in his dialogues, his, his magnum opus, The Republic. He spends a great deal of energy unpacking uh, the importance of these virtues for an individual and for the commonwealth. And so it's quite clear that the Apostle Paul uh, studied man a man who knew his culture, a man who would have known Greek philosophy, is plundering the norms of his time. And he's speaking towards them with now a new understanding, a renewed understanding based upon the revelation of God. He now is going to speak towards those reality with gospel purposes. Now, though all this seems true, contextualization Truth and goodness and beauty, the ancient virtues and paradigm. I think a lot more is going on here than just contextualization. More is happening in the Apostle Paul's mind. Because truth and goodness and beauty were not discovered by Plato or the Greco-Roman world. If we want to know really the origins of these realities, we have to go back to the pages of Revelation, to the very beginning of Scripture, to the beginning of time. We might even go back to those first opening pages of the book of Genesis and see that it's right there in the story of Adam and Eve and in that, well, that insidious, wicked serpent who shows up, that it's these three realities that make a presentation there, truth, goodness, and a beauty. You'll remember it that day that Eve, probably minding our own business, working there in the garden, finds herself approached by the craftiest of all of the beasts that God has made, this serpent. And the serpent begins to ask questions to Eve to get her thinking, well, to get her doubting. Did God actually say that you can't eat from any of the trees in the garden? And Eve's like, don't overstate things. Uh, God didn't say that we can't eat from any tree of the garden. He, just, he said we could eat from all the trees except one, that tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Because if we eat of that tree... Well, we'll actually die. And then the serpent says, in a way of speaking, hogwash. Uh, That's not true. God actually knows that if you eat of that tree, something magical is going to happen. You're going to come into the knowledge 
of good and evil. You're actually going to be like God himself. Now it's in the the ringing of those words in the head of Eve that the wheels begin to turn for her. And the text gives us in Genesis chapter 2 a bit of the thought process of Eve, the, the thinking that's going on within her. Do you remember her process? The text reads this way. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Now in light of where we are in Philippians chapter 4 verse 8, in light of the contextualization of the Apostle Paul and the triumvirate of truth and goodness and beauty, I hope that you could hear in Eve's thought process the very same virtues and yet defining them quite different. Notice how she said it. The tree was good for food. And the tree was a delight to the eyes. It was beautiful. And the tree was desired to make one wise. It could give to you truth. In one way of speaking, the fall of mankind took place when man, in the Garden of Eden long ago, began to define truth and goodness and beauty according to his own terms, with reference to his own mind, independently from God's definitions. And it's in that moment, no surprise, that the world becomes a place that's full of lies, it's full of evil and full of ugliness. The opposite of the truth and the goodness and the beauty for which the world was made for begins to be turned on its head. And all of a sudden we begin to see that what got us into the trouble in the first place was that we were defining our own truth, our own goodness, and our own beauty according to our own minds. And the Apostle Paul here in Philippians chapter 4 verse 8 says, Church at Philippi, I am not going to entrust to you in your own minds to be able to define the things which you ought to be thinking about. But instead, I want to give to you the curriculum of truth and goodness and beauty to ponder in order that you might begin to find your way out of this trouble. Now, in saying it that way, I'm not suggesting that you and I, with the power of our own thinking, uh, can somehow reverse the infliction of lies and, and evil and ugliness that is the world today. But I am suggesting that there is someone who can. In fact, I'm going to go further than that. I am proclaiming that there's someone who has. And I believe there's a hint in the passage of Philippians 4.8 that lays the foundations for us with regards to the kind and quality of the content that we are to think about. It's wrapped up in that word think. The Apostle Paul gives us a commonly used but powerful Greek word when he uses the term that's translated think in your English text. It's, it's a word, logizomai, which means to ponder. To consider, to reflect on, to, 
to conclude, to reckon. It describes a process of thinking, a process of thinking where persons continue to discipline themselves to come back to the things which their mind ought to think about to have such influence and impact upon the whole of their persons that over time they become transformed by that which they think. It's the same kind of language that the Apostle uses in Romans chapter 12, verse 2, when he says, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your minds. In the context of Philippians 4, 8, we might say whatever is true, whatever is honorable, Whatever is just or pure or lovely or commendable, let that take residence in your mind. And let it have governing or controlling power over your mind in such a way that it might leak down into the whole of your soul. Capture the fullness of who you are as a person and transform your being from the inside out that a new you might emerge. The kind of thinking that the Apostle Paul is giving us here is not the kind of academic thinking that a lot of us are accustomed to. It's not merely book learning in the abstract so that you can make the grade on the test as if you could somehow lodge away the right information in the the channels of your brain and find that you are radically transformed. How often do we not do the things that we know we ought to do? No, the Apostle Paul has a much more holistic process in mind. A process whereby the kind of mind and thinking that he speaks to changes the entire person. He actually hints at that. Did you notice that in verse 9? That after he talks through all of these virtues of, of what is true and honorable, just, pure, lovely, commendable... If there's anything excellent, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. And then notice what he says. He he begins to connect it to himself. He says, what you have learned and received and heard and seen in me. All of a sudden, he begins to take those virtues that he's presented to us. And he begins to say, listen, you've seen those things. You've heard those things. You've learned those things by watching me. I've demonstrated them to you. They're they're not things that you can just simply learn with a book or lodge away in a mind. There are things that you have to see in the life of a person. They have to be lived expressively on display so that you can catch what it is that they actually mean. I was talking to a new father less than a year ago, reflecting on hopes and dreams of the kind of father he wanted himself to be. And yet he bemoaned the fact that he never had a father like the father that he wants to be. He had read many books on what it meant to be a father. He had reflected deeply upon practices that he wanted to instill in the life of his family in order to positively disciple and care for his his new baby boy. And yet as he talked to me about all the content that he he had garnered and gathered into his mind, he said, if I could just... Well, if I just knew what it looked like in practice, if I just knew someone, if I could just see someone, if I could see a good father, I think I would have a better understanding of what it means to be a father. Paul is saying a very similar thing here. He's saying, listen, you remember what's lovely? You remember the things that I've seen 
and shown you as beautiful. You, you know what is just because you remember how I spoke to you and how I acted in the marketplace and when I engaged with the officials and when I spoke to you about the gospel of Jesus Christ. You, you, you know about goodness and moral excellence, not simply because you, you took a test on it, but because you've seen it displayed in the life of a person. Paul knows this because embedded in that word thinking that he gives us is actually the root word for the word logos. The word that John uses at the opening of his gospel, the, the, the word made flesh, where he describes not just a word-based revelation, a, a written word or a spoken word, but he describes a person that is word whose name is the Lord Jesus Christ. It's as if Paul is saying in this passage, you know the things which I've taught you, but have you seen the things which I've shown you? Have you not only been taught, but have you caught the realities of the virtues of what it means to live a holy and disciplined life? Before Almighty God. The habit of thinking and the pattern which the Apostle Paul is, is giving us here is saying, all of what I'm going to share with you in these few verses about virtue, all of what my epistle is about, everything that I've poured my life out for in ministry is about getting you to a place where you see and encounter the Word made flesh, the Logos Himself. You see, when you're thinking about what is true, you're thinking about the Lord Jesus Christ because He is the way and He is the truth and He is the life. When you're thinking about that which is, is honorable, you're, you're, you're thinking about a man in whom there is no sin and of whom Peter tells us there is no guile in his mouth. When you think about what is just, you begin to see His equity and the recognition that he upholds the standards of God and he does not compromise them in the least. That he was pure, without spot or without blemish, the prophet tells us. That he was as white as snow, that was his righteousness. And that as we see his truth and as we see his goodness, it presents before us in loveliness and with glory, as John himself would write in 1 John and in the Gospel of John, that Jesus, this Word made flesh, is to us a glory that we have seen. The glory of the only Son from the Father who is full of truth and grace. There you see it. John chapter 1 verse 14, there we see it. Jesus, the Word made flesh, He is the truth. Jesus, the Word made flesh, He is the grace of God, the fullness of goodness expressed in justice and mercy. There is Jesus full of glory, which we have seen, who has captured our attention and is to us the most beautiful thing that we have ever laid our eyes on. There is Jesus. He is the sum of what is true, of what is good, and what is beautiful. 
When the Apostle Paul is giving to us here in Philippians chapter 4 these lists of virtues, as he's building on the capital of the Greco-Roman world, as he's establishing a context by which his audience can be impacted, he is most of all building a bridge to show us the beauty of Jesus Christ. Because Paul knows that there is no book and there is no mere word of man that can change us from one degree of glory to the next. We must have a saving and continually sanctifying encounter with the person of Jesus Christ himself. And this is why we find the cross so beautiful. Oh, well, now that's strange. After all of this talk about truth, after all of this talk about goodness, and all of this talk about beauty, I, I describe the cross as that. A, a, place that a, a place that looks like utter horror that we would recoil in if we were there with our own physical eyes seeing the torture and the, the venomous attack that was levied against our own Savior. It would be to us the ugliest thing in the world. And who could call that good? It was rife with injustice. It was riddled with with wickedness. Those plotting against him, lying. It It was rife with lies. There was no truth in it. All of the circumstances was filled completely with the opposite of what the Apostle Paul is calling us to hear. And yet for us, it is the moment of greatest truth. It is the moment of supreme goodness and it is the most glorious presentation we have ever seen because it is there where we see in all of these things the love of God full of grace and truth on display. It is Jesus taking on all the lies that we've ever told. It's Jesus taking on all of the evil and the wickedness that we've ever done. It is Jesus taking on all of the ugliness that we are in order that we might become the truth and the goodness and the beauty of His righteousness before Almighty God. And all that we see when we see the ugliness of the cross is we see the supreme beauty of that cross because all of that ugliness that He received is that we would become beautiful clothed in the righteousness of Christ, where one day welcomed into his kingdom, we will be seen in those beautiful robes of righteousness and we will see the beautiful face of our Savior who has saved us. Do you see, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, Whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, whatever is excellent, and whatever is praiseworthy is ultimately all bound up in Christ. Friends, as we begin this study in Philippians chapter 4, verses 8 and 9, and spend time over the next couple of weeks going deep into these beautiful words that the Apostle Paul gives us, don't lose sight of this. In it all, he is showing you the beauty of Jesus. Let the Christ who is truth, the Christ who is goodness, and the Christ who is our beauty become even more true, more good, and more beautiful in your own mind's eye. Toward that end, we pursue our Lord. Let's pray together. Lord in heaven, we would ask you now 
to let these words um, begin to soak into us and these realities begin to change us. For we want the truth that is Christ and the goodness that is Christ and the beauty that is Christ to become more of who we are as His people. We, we would ask you this day that you would, you would begin to set these virtues, these realities in our hearts. And as we reflect deeply on them in the days to come, we would ask that you would show us increasingly the truth and the goodness and the beauty of Jesus. And that we would find that whatever it is that we find true in the world, and whatever it is we find good in the world, and whatever it is that we find beautiful in the world, we find it so because it, it has the faintest reflection of His goodness and truth and beauty. Lord, let us be faithful to trace all that we find unto Christ. And measure it by the standard of who he is. That we might know the real standard of what real virtue is all about. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.